Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. This is not just for contracting officers. It's for everyone who works anywhere in the government acquisition world. Our mission is to make government contracts better one contract at a time by helping both government and industry acquisition professionals understand each other a little bit better. Here you get the perspective of former contracting officers who also have experience on the industry side. And today we're talking about the government's proposal evaluation process. Let's get this started. Today we're talking about contractors as proposal evaluators because Steve Lucianetti, one of our retired contracting officers, wrote a blog for our members about contractors routinely evaluating proposals and all the rules about it. This was so common when I was a contracting officer throughout my career that I thought it was was well understood that, that contractors evaluated proposals, or at least it was well known. It turns out that maybe it's neither. <laughs> Based on talking to some of our members and other podcast listeners, not everybody knows that this happens, and it happens regularly. Before we dig into that, let's stop and say thanks. Thanks this week goes to Patrick Grant from the U.S. Army. He's the chief of general litigation branch at the Fort Belvoir, Virginia. As the chief of general litigation, I bet he's got some great stories for the podcast. So um, I suggest that you contact him for being a guest on the podcast, Paul. Anyway, I, I want to thank Patrick for actively resharing our podcast on LinkedIn because liking our podcast helps, but resharing it helps even more because it helps more people find the episodes. Folks like Patrick are helping us show more people government contracts from the ground level with the podcast. So thanks for sharing it. Thanks, Patrick. Today, we're talking about contractors as proposal evaluators. The FAR generally allows contractor personnel to evaluate proposals as long as they don't have a conflict of interest. And we covered the basics of organizational conflicts of interest in a previous podcast. That's episode 55. For Skyway community members, you can search for OCI inside the community, and you'll see three blog articles from our team of former contracting officers dealing with this particular topic. There are also videos on organizational conflict of interest that cover the details of OCI and the FAR. Since we're talking FAR, let's make this official. We're now in FAR time. FAR 9.505 requires exercise of common sense, good judgment, and sound discretion in both the decision on whether a significant potential conflict of interest exists, and if it does, the development of an appropriate means for resolving it. I love the fact that the FAR actually says exercise common sense. There's, there's a joke in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't tell my dad that. He said I never had any common sense. <laughs> the two underlying principles that this part of the FAR is talking about is preventing the existence of conflicting roles that might bias a contractor's judgment and preventing unfair competitive advantage. Those are the two big bullets that they're referencing here. A different part of the FAR, FAR 9.502, subparagraph B3, explains that conflicts of interest are more likely to occur in contracts involving CETA, Systems Engineering Technical Assistance, and technical evaluations. So if you're a contractor that's providing advice to the government, that you're helping them evaluate proposals, that's where conflicts are most likely to occur. And, and it's common enough or it's risky enough that this part of the FAR 9.502 B3 specifically calls out technical evaluations. That's what that part's referring to. FAR 9.505-3 brings it all home for <laughs> We're us. far heavy today. Yeah, 
this paragraph is called providing evaluation services. So that's, that's specifically what we're talking about here, this one little paragraph. It says contracts for the evaluation of offers for products or services shall not be awarded to a contractor that will evaluate its own offers for products or services or those of a competitor without proper safeguards to ensure objectivity to protect the government's interests. That's a long way of saying you can't evaluate something that you have some personal interest in them and a company winning. Or a company losing. If you're yeah. in the business, you don't get to evaluate bids about that business as part of the government team. And the language it uses, without proper safeguards to ensure objectivity. There's the thinking job, because the definition, definition of proper and the definition of objectivity are both pretty fuzzy there. Many agencies and organizations have supplemental rules that clarify exactly what they mean by proper safeguards and ensure objectivity. Maybe, maybe there wasn't enough thinking going on in the thinking job, so, <laughs> so they laid it out exactly. This is what we mean by proper safeguards. What I mean by that, some agencies do not allow CETA companies to do any other kind of work. If you are a company that provides advisory and assistance services to the government, you don't get to also supply products or other kinds of services. You're in the business of helping the government, advising the government, not delivering other things to the government. That's a hard rule. Some agencies allow you to be sort of on both sides, but require that you do that out of separate divisions of your company, separate profit and loss centers. And some agencies, and even some RFPs, leave it to a case-by-case -case basis, which I got to tell you, it's pretty cumbersome because <laughs> I've done those from both sides and it can be very difficult to navigate the nuances of this on a case-by-case -case basis. But it's important to navigate the nuances because if you don't get this right, you can derail the entire acquisition process. If you don't recognize that there is a potential organizational conflict of interest and you're not monitoring and dealing with it ahead of time, you don't want to find out about it deep into the source selection, whether you're government or industry. We started by mentioning that the topic for this podcast came from Steve's blog article. And a lot of what he talked about in that was this is common. And there are some things you need to be aware of because contractor personnel are often supporting the evaluation of proposals. And he's a retired Navy contracting officer. And he said he was involved in source selections, a number of them that involve contractor personnel, as was I. I can't think of a source selection I was involved in that didn't have contractor personnel helping the government out. And it wasn't just big ones. I mean, I had ones that were under a million dollars that we had contractor support personnel just because that's, that's the way the government operates. <laughs> They're all over their contractors that are needed for lots of things. I mean, whether it's big stuff like a $75 million aircraft simulator software upgrade that I remember doing. And like I said, some of the smaller stuff. You know, less than $100,000, I specifically had a contractor was a contract specialist. And also the evaluator was supported by a contractor. And it's kind of weird that we say you know, $100,000 contract is small. <laughs> That's just how it works. We've talked about advisory and assistance personnel, contractors, supporting source selections before in our source selection zone episodes and in other episodes dealing with the proposal evaluation process. Contractors often serve as the technical experts, especially in complicated source selections, where government personnel may not have the appropriate experience in some specific magic technical thing. The contractors don't get to vote 
on who wins and who doesn't, but their recommendations and their descriptions of strengths and weaknesses can have a powerful impact on the government's award decision. Let me tell you how seriously I took the potential for OCI as a contracting officer. I once made two CETAs, two contractors who were supporting the government source selection team, I made them sell stock. They had worked for a company that was a developer and received stock as part of working for that company. That developer was now bidding on our acquisition. It was great to have those two guys on the government side because they understood the technology inside and out, but they owned stock in the company, which created a situation where they could potentially enrich themselves by swaying the decision towards that company, driving up the stock price. What do you know? They make more money. I made them sell. I made them make a choice, either sell the stock or don't do your job. Don't support the source selection. (laughs) Or be unemployed or, or employed elsewhere. Funny enough, they both decided to sell their stock. And within a week or two later, the stock crashed. And they went from being very mad at me, or at least, one guy's wife was very mad at me and very mad at him for selling the stock until it crashed. And then it turns out they sold at the peak and everyone was really happy. <laughs> you never know how things are going to shake out. The key factor is they had to communicate with you when they took the role as a CETA support person that they own stock in this company. And that's what the monitoring is. So the, their company was monitoring them enough to say, oh, you have this personal conflict. Because if that comes out during the source election, it derails the whole thing. Yeah. And that's why it's important enough to attack it up front. Yeah, it's not just who do you work for now, but do you hold a financial interest in a company that's bidding on this that could enrich you personally if the decision goes the right way for you? Let's make sure we link this to the acquisition and execution time zones. We're talking about the acquisition time zones here. Contractors are involved on the government side all the way from the beginning of the process. Contractors are often helping the government commit their requirements to paper or to Microsoft Word. (laughs) A contractor with a conflict of interest could sway the requirements so only one company can win. During the market research zone, same thing. During the RFP zone, the RFP is out, so the contractors in the government aren't doing quite as much then except for answering questions, which could cause problems if there is a conflict of interest. And a lot of those questions during the RFP zone could be technical in nature. And if the C to support people are the technical expert... They're going to be answering them, and then guess they're going to be filtered. But I mean, the basis of the answer is going to come from those people, hence the conflict. Maybe they don't answer the question very well to the contractor they don't want to win. <laughs> there you go. Or, or the perception is they're not doing that, which is right. effectively the same thing. All that aside, what we're really talking about here is the source selection zone where contractors are actually evaluating the proposals. So most of this is source selection zone specific but it goes across all of the acquisition time zones. Yes, the the impact culminates in the source selection zone. Let's get specific on the government side. What happens if the government doesn't carefully monitor potential OCIs when contractors are evaluators? As a contracting officer, this was obvious to me. I thought everybody knew this, but oftentimes they didn't. They didn't realize the impact of what happens if there is a conflict? If, if the person evaluating this proposal owns stock in their competitor, what happens is that you could derail the whole, the whole contract, the whole, the whole acquisition process. You end up having to start all over again. You undermine what people think about your acquisition process and your agency in general if there's this conflict of the people evaluating my proposal are competitors of mine. 
mean, think about how you would feel. That's the impact. Even in the market research zone and the RFP zone when the final RFP is released, if a potential OCI comes up that has to be mitigated or has to be researched and decisions have to be made, at a minimum, you're going to delay the source selection process. And like you said, worst case, you could blow the whole thing up. If it's discovered late in the process when all the work has been done and the award decision is made and someone says, wait a second, you did not surface this potential conflict of interest or this real conflict of interest early in the process, the whole thing could get messed up. You got to start over. Disaster. Switching to the industry side. Why does industry care? Ah, they don't want disasters either, do they? <laughs> That's right. They don't want to waste their time either. Nobody wants to waste their time. Industry folks, other contractors are likely going to evaluate your proposals. And here's a big nugget of why that's important. Back to FAR time for just a second. We're going to dip our toe back in FAR time. FAR 9.505-4. This is OCI restrictions that are designed to protect against unfair competitive advantage. However, those restrictions, they're not intended to protect information that is, one, furnished voluntarily without limitations on its use. So make sure that you mark your proposals correctly to limit how that proposal information is used and the FAR actually gives you the proper language to include on the cover page of your proposal and subsequent pages to make sure that you have properly limited its use. And number two, it's not designed to protect information that is available to the government or, or other contractor from other sources without restriction. In other words, it's open source. They just found it somewhere other than your proposal. So make sure that any trade secrets or proprietary information isn't shared in other venues without proper restrictive markings. You know, actually says proprietary on everything in, in a meeting if you're sharing this information. If it doesn't say proprietary and a CETA gets it, they already have that information. So marking it later in the source selection doesn't prevent them from using it. You also should make sure you have proper non-disclosure agreements in place whenever you're sharing any trade secrets or proprietary information. Okay, last FAR reference. FAR 9.508 gives some examples of, of situations where organizational conflict of interest might show up. doesn't give you a solution to every one of them, but it does give about eight or nine examples of, of these are the kind of things to be aware of. Wow, that's some FAR overload today. That's a lot. Luckily, it's all like 9.5, but there are a lot <laughs> of, of FAR references there. My brain's about to explode. Before that happens, let's wrap this one up. <laughs> so, okay, then I'm going to put in one more FAR reference. Uh, for, for me, to, <laughs> on the government side, FAR 9.5, which is where we're living here, and, and 9.507-1 in particular, it requires that you add a provision to your RFP to let offers know contractor personnel will evaluate their proposals. Why is that important? Because otherwise they can protest it if you didn't tell them you're going to do it. This is how you tell them you're going to do it. And for all the reasons we've already talked about today. On the industry side, assume contractors are going to see your proposals and, and mark them proprietary as appropriate. If you're concerned about contractors seeing your stuff, right? ask who will be evaluating and, and ask about what's the OCI mitigation plan that the government has during the market research zone before final RFP comes out. Or if you're already in the RFP zone and the RFP has already come out, then you can use a tightly worded question to kind of suss this out, make sure you're aware of what's going on. And by the way, that's one of the things we help our Skyway community members with. 
But regardless, knowing this is happening and knowing the rules around it is going to keep you from walking into hot water or giving away information that you don't know you've just made public. All right. My head didn't explode. I think maybe because you used the same far paragraph, I was able to survive (laughs) that one. But that provision is important. Many RFPs go beyond just saying that contractor personnel will evaluate the proposal and tell you explicitly which companies will participate in the evaluation so that you can more easily assess the potential for OCI and decide whether or not you need to ask some questions before the RFP comes out. All right, that's it for today and for FAR references, Kevin. (laughs) That's enough OCI for today. I'll talk to you later. See you, Paul. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoy our podcast, we invite you to check out the Skyway community at skywaymember.com. The Skyway community is the essential resource for anyone at any stage of starting, growing, and running a business with government contracts. We speak GovCon. Whether you're brand new to GovCon, just got your first contract, or you're already a successful government contractor, being a Skyway community member gives you the edge. With our extensive tools and training, exclusive member discounts on consulting support, and a supportive and active community of peers to help you along the way, the Skyway community is the perfect place for anyone who is serious about winning new business. To learn more, call us at 877-884-5280 or check us out at skywaymember.com. We'll see you next week.